Today we're going to continue this series, Wake Up, and I want to speak to you today from the subject, Wake Up to Your Power. Wake Up to Your Power. You see, there's this scripture, uh, 1 John 4, 4, that says this, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Another way to say that is that the greatest power in the world lives inside of you. The greatest power in the universe lives inside of you. And yet, then we have to kind of, we have to be honest with ourselves. We have to take a step back and we have to ask the question then. So why do so many Christians live such powerless lives sometimes? Why do we live such powerless lives sometimes? Why do we walk around insecure as if we're not God's sons and daughters? Why do we sink under the waves rather than walking on water so often? Why do we worry and stress so compulsively rather than just entering into the dance of our salvation and knowing that Jesus is gonna take care of us? Scripture tells us in Romans chapter eight, verse 11, that the spirit of the one who raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives inside of you. And in 2 Timothy chapter one, verse seven, it says that God hasn't given you a spirit of fear or a spirit of timidity, but he's given you a spirit of power. You have the greatest power in the universe living inside of you. You have power to overcome any obstacle, no matter how difficult. You have power to forgive any offense, no matter how great. You have power to live an extraordinary life, no matter the cards that you were dealt. So how do you wake up to this power? How do you wake up to this power that's already inside of you? How do you live in a context of that power? all the days of our lives. That's what we're gonna talk about today. Does that sound good? Does that sound good? Awesome. Hey, when I was in eighth grade, I, I played football, played football really my entire life, like growing up. But in eighth grade, I entered into this league that had this really, really dumb rule that if you were over 165 pounds, you couldn't actually play a position where you touched the football. So you couldn't be quarterback, you couldn't be wide receiver, couldn't be running back. Now, this was a huge problem for me for a couple reasons. One, I was a running back. Two, even in eighth grade, I was 180 pounds. So I heard this rule and my heart just sank. I mean, I just like, I, I just dropped. I remember going home that night and telling my dad, I was like, dad, I got a month and a half. You need to help me lose 15 pounds. Like, can you do this? You know, like I need your help. And I'll never forget my dad. He looked at me. He's like, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be fun, but we can make it work. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I'm in like, honestly, whatever it takes, like I got to lose the weight. I want to be a running back. And so the next morning I wake up and I had this nightstand next to my bed and there was this like box on it. And I was like, what is this? I, I grabbed the box. I pulled out, uh, opened up the box, pulled something out. And it was something I'd never seen before. It was this little thing called a sauna suit. Anyone ever seen a sauna suit? Oh yeah. Okay. If you've never seen a sauna suit, just picture a garbage bag that you wear. It's got elastic on the wrists, on the ankles. And what it essentially does is it traps in all of your heat, thus creating this personal sauna for you so that you can sweat and sweat and sweat and sweat some more. Now, just so you can really visualize it with me, this wasn't even like a cool, like black color. It wasn't even the cool, like white color. It was literally like this bright silver color that made me look like I worked for NASA. and was like training to be an astronaut and go to the moon or something. I mean, it was, it was ridiculous, but I was like, okay, I'm in. I'll, I'll just do it. So my dad came up with this diet. Uh, I, by the way, I wouldn't really recommend what I did for this month and a half. This, this diet where I didn't eat that much. And then I, I worked out literally like two or three times a day. And I would always wear this sauna suit. And I, would, I was that guy running around town. Just picture it. Walnut Creek. Downtown Walnut Creek. Just running Civic, you know, just in this bright silver sauna suit. And I was just so motivated. I want to lose the weight. About halfway through this time, too, I got all my football gear. And so I decided it would be a good idea to wear the sauna suit. And then over the, the sauna suit, you know, put on my shoulder 
shoulder pads and my helmet. And just so you can picture it, our colors were purple and gold. And so, I mean, just, it was, it was a mess. I mean, I looked horrible. And so I'm, I'm running around my neighborhood this one particular day. And my neighborhood had this wonderful, like, one-mile loop. And we lived at the top of a hill. And the hill was about a quarter of a mile long. And at the bottom of the hill was this beautiful kind of river area where a lot of people would go and hang out. And over the summer, unfortunately, a lot of college kids would come in. And they would get their drink on and their party on. And then they'd get in the car. And then they'd leave. And, and so this one particular day, it just timed out so that I was running down by this river and about five college kids get into this car and you could tell that they weren't really all there, if you know what I mean. And they get in the car and they, 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 start, they start following me. And, and at first it started a little bit harmless where I, I heard them shout, their windows were rolled down, I heard them shout like, you look like an idiot, you know. And I just remember thinking like, no duh, I know that, you know. But, but all of a sudden their, their comments kind of increased, they got a little bit more vulgar and I started to get nervous. So I was like, I'll just outrun them. And that didn't work. And so I get back up to the top of the hill right in front of my house. And I was like, okay, I really want to lose the weight. There's no way they're going to follow me back down the hill. You're fine, Caleb. Just drop it. We'll continue the workout. So I turn around. I go down the hill to run another, another hill, repeat. And all of a sudden, I see out of the corner of my eye, their car is now in reverse. And they're following me down this hill. Now, this is where my heart starts racing. I was like, am I in a horror movie right now? Like, what's about to happen, you know? I start actually getting really nervous. I'm playing out different scenarios. And, and I think to myself, Caleb, you're a running back. You got this. Just put a quick juke move on, and they won't even see it coming, you know? And so that's what I do. I plant my foot, and I just sprint up to the top of the hill as fast as I can. And of course, without a moment's hesitation, they, you know, shift out of uh, reverse and into drive, into forward again. They start following me again. And by this time, the stuff that they're saying, I can't even repeat it. It's church, okay? I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty bad. And so I see at the top of the hill, though, this figure, and as I get closer and closer, I realize that it's my dad. And my dad is standing at the top of the hill, and he's kind of in this, like, athletic stance, and I see a look in his eyes that I've never seen before. It was just like pure fury and like rage. And, uh, and, and real quick, I just got to put a pause on this. My dad is like one of the nicest, most encouraging, like fatherly like personalities that you'll ever meet. He's also a pastor, okay? So just keep that in mind as I continue this story, okay? So he's at the top of the hill just ready. And, and I come up to the hill and he doesn't, even, he doesn't even say anything to me. He just points at the garage. And I know exactly what that means. It means it's about to go down, son. Get out of the way, okay? And so I get up to the top of the hill and I go over to the garage and I sit down and my dad, without even missing a beat, sprints at the car. And I, I, that, that really surprised me. I was like, I don't know what my dad's plan is here. I'm assuming he's just going to say, like, get out of here. He literally sprints at the car. All their windows are rolled down because they've been yelling at me the whole time. My dad reaches his hand inside the driver's seat, okay, inside the driver's seat, grabs the guy by the shirt collar, pulls him close to him where his, like, upper body's almost out of the window, and he starts yelling at him. In fact, it was a pretty epic moment. It was the first time I ever heard my pastor dad swear. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, dang. And, and he starts yelling though at him and he goes, he goes, what are you telling my son? What are you telling my boy? And the guy goes, you, you can't touch me. You can't touch me. I'm a minor. I'm a minor. And, and I got to admit, if I was in my dad's shoes, I would have let go. My dad didn't do that. He pulled him in even closer. And he yells at him and he goes, you're not a minor. And the guy, the guy goes, you're right. Just don't hurt me. Just don't hurt me. And I'm just, I'm watching this thing thinking to myself, this is better than any show on Netflix. I like, I got to get this on YouTube. This thing's going to go viral. I mean, this is amazing. And, and so my dad said a few more, you know, very pastorly words and basically told them to never come back ever again. And they drove away. And to be honest, I will never, ever forget that story because the reality is I didn't have the power inside of me to actually deal with that situation. There was no way. But check this out. My dad did. And the minute my dad stepped into the situation, his power became my power. 
His power became my power. You see, what's so incredible is that's actually the offer that we have from God. That when we invite God into our lives, when we invite God into a particular situation in our lives, his power actually becomes our power. There's this beautiful story in the scriptures that communicates this message so profoundly. It's found in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, and it regards this, this person named Jehoshaphat. Now, at this time in history, the people of Israel were divided into two different kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom, which was called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. And Judah had a history of kings that really followed God, that trusted God, that tried to serve God wholeheartedly, and Jehoshaphat was actually one of them. And what we are told is that Jehoshaphat's reign was about 25 years in length, and it was extremely prosperous. In fact, scripture tells us that he had over one million people in his army, which back in that day was like an astronomical number. It was incredible. So we know he was prosperous. And then scholars and theologians think that it was about six to seven years before Jehoshaphat's death, all of these foreign armies joined forces and declared war on Judah and King Jehoshaphat. And what scripture tells us in the Hebrew, it just simply says this, that it was a great multitude. In other words, it was way too many to count. And we know from context that it outnumbered Jehoshaphat's army, which says a lot. Now, I'm going to kind of fast forward. I'm going to skip to the ending, so forgive me, or you're welcome, however you like it, okay? If you like to know the ending, all right? But I'm going to skip to the ending. God stepped into their situation, and his power became the people of Judah's power. And it was the most epic moment in the scriptures where God literally fought on behalf of his people. And it was an epic victory, an epic moment in the scriptures. And it's this story that we're going to kind of dissect and travel through together. Because I really believe that there are three things that we can learn from King Jehoshaphat and from this particular story. Three things that we can learn and that we can implement and do in our lives so that we can actually wake up to the power that we have in God. Here's the first thing that we learn. The first thing that we have to do. Be humble. Be humble. The story of Jehoshaphat, he hears this great multitude is coming towards, uh, towards him, towards his people. And this is where we pick up 2 Chronicles chapter 20, beginning in verse 3. This is what the scriptures say. It says this, frightened, Jehoshaphat decided to seek the Lord's help, and he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. People from all of Judah's cities came to ask the Lord for help. And then Jehoshaphat stood up in the congregation of Judah in Jerusalem in the Lord's temple in front of the new courtyard. And he said this, Lord, God of our ancestors, you alone are God in heaven. You rule all the kingdoms of the nation. You are so powerful that no one could oppose you. Dot, dot, dot. Now, if, if you keep reading here, Jehoshaphat actually goes on to list specific incidences and circumstances in Judah's past, in Judah's history, intentionally reminding himself and all the people of Judah how God has unrivaled power and unrelenting faithfulness. It's pretty epic. But then in verse 12, he says this. This is King Jehoshaphat. He says this epic line. He says, we are powerless against this mighty army that is about to attack us. We don't know what to do, so we are looking to you for help. And other English translations actually word it. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. It's an incredibly powerful moment. Jehoshaphat is essentially saying, God, we know that you are the all-powerful one, that nothing can stand in your way, that nothing can defeat you. You have no rival. You have no competition. But I, I am so powerless on my own. I am incapable of actually fixing this situation. I am incapable of actually overcoming this, difficult, this difficulty of, of fighting this battle on my own. I need you. I need you desperately. It's an incredibly noble and yet an incredibly humble prayer that Jehoshaphat is actually praying. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's also an extremely difficult prayer for a lot of us to pray. 
in his fictional book, uh, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis tells this uh, fictional story of this bus that actually travels from hell into the outskirts of heaven with a group of people in it. And they have an opportunity to taste the splendor and beauty and magnificence of heaven. And then they can actually decide whether or not they want to remain there. It's a very interesting read. And, and one of these people who C.S. Lewis calls the big man is a picture of what you could say is the modernist or the individualist or the self-made man. And so this character, the big man, enters the outskirts of heaven and encounters one of the divine beings. And this is the first thing he says. He Essentially, he's defending himself even as he kind of is on the outskirts of heaven. He says this. He goes, I gone straight all my life. I don't say I was a religious man. I don't say that I didn't have my faults. Far from it. But I've done my best all my life, you see. I've done my best by everyone. That's the sort of chap I was. I never asked for anything that wasn't mine by rights. If I had a drink, I paid for it. If I took my wages, I'd done my job, you see. That's the sort of chap I was. I don't care who knows it. And then he says this, though. He says, I only want my rights. I'm not asking for anyone's bleeding charity. Whoa. I only want my rights. I'm not asking for anyone's charity. In other words, I arrived here by my own power. I got here where I am today by myself. So I deserve blessing. I deserve a good life. I deserve comfort and power and success. I don't need God because I have myself, but I want and deserve the good things that God will give me. And this mindset, if we can just be real this morning, is so prevalent in our culture today, still. And it's so much more so even in the Bay Area. You see, we are surrounded by material success. We are surrounded by charisma. We are surrounded by hard work. We're surrounded by an ideology that communicates that we are where we are today by our own power and because of our own strength. And if I could just be honest with you, the biggest opponent to God's power is our pride. The biggest opponent to God's power is our pride. Pride stifles power. Pride shuts it down. It suffocates it. Remember what the scriptures say? James chapter 4, verse 6 says that, that, that God actually stands against the proud. He opposes the proud, but he favors the humble. Another way to communicate it is this, that he actually gives power to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. He gives strength to the humble. He gives provision to the humble. He literally takes care of the humble. He fights their battles. His power becomes their power. The, the Apostle Paul is arguably one of the most incredible, influential, and to use the word powerful figures in Scripture. He uh, planted more churches than anyone else, wrote 13 books in the Bible, uh, endured unspeakable hardships, eventually died as a martyr in Rome for his faith in Jesus. And yet in, in a letter to one of the churches that he started, the church in Corinth, he, he opens up very transparently to them. And he shares about an encounter that he had with God. And I want us to read it together real quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says this, the Lord said to me, my grace is enough for you because power is made perfect in weakness. So I'll gladly spend my time bragging about my weaknesses so that Christ's power can rest on me. Therefore, I'm all right with weaknesses, insults, disasters, harassments, and even stressful situations for the sake of Christ because when I am weak, then I am strong. Oh, I love that verse. When I am weak, then I am strong. Another way to understand this is Paul is essentially saying, man, when I humble myself, the power of God rests on me. I have the power of God, and I get to operate in that context. You see, it sounds like such a paradox, but here's the reality. The most powerful people in God's kingdom are the ones who admit they are the most powerless in themselves. I'll say that again. The most powerful people in God's kingdom are the ones who admit 
that they are the most powerless in themselves. Humility unlocks the door of heaven. Humility clears the road so that God's power can actually flow and operate in our lives. Humility is the conduit that God actually uses to show his power to us and his power to the world. So here's two quick applications that I want to just kind of present to you on this subject of humility. Here's the first one. We need to humbly admit our need for God. Humbly admit your need for God. It's, uh, it's such a vulnerable feeling knowing that your iPhone is about to die, isn't it? It's like one of the worst feelings in the world. Like every time I see it, like I was driving from, uh, I had this intensive course down in Menlo Park this last week, and, and my phone was on like 5% battery. And I was like, I don't know where I am. I can't use Waze. I, I have FOMO, fear of missing out. I can't check my Instagram. I got no vibes in this car. I can't listen to music. I was like such a vulnerable feeling. And of course, there are three options when your phone is about to die, right? There's option one, you just let it die. Option two, you have some like portable device that kind of gives it a little extra boost, you know, for a little bit, gets you going. And then option three is you actually just, you know, you find an outlet and you actually plug it into the source. Now, it's such an, a simple illustration, but I, I really pray that you can track with me here. Because I believe that it's a reflection of what actually happens inside of us all the time. There are people that I meet all the time that are dying inside. And, and then, and then they, 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 they really, they're up front with like, man, I don't spend any time with God. I never go to church. I never hang out with anyone that actually loves Jesus or anyone that actually inspires me and gives me hope. It's no wonder that you're dying inside. And then I meet people all the time, too, that they're filling themselves up with just these counterfeit little sources, these counterfeit little things that maybe it kind of fixes the problem in the short run, but really what it's doing is it's just prolonging an inevitable death. You're still dying inside. You're just taking your mind off of it temporarily. But then I meet those rare people that, man, they just spend time with God, and they're just always happy no matter what happens to them, and it's just crazy, and you want to be around those people, but those people are the ones that are actually charging themselves up in the presence of God. You see, there is a direct relationship between God's presence and God's power. You want to experience God's power, then encounter God's presence. Spend time in his scriptures. Pray. We got 40-day read-through journals in the back. Grab one of those. Just start. Grab somebody that you look up to and just say, hey, can we read the Bible together? Just start. You can't afford not to. You need to humbly admit your need for God. And here's the second thing. You need to humbly admit your need for each other. We need to humbly admit our need for each other. You see, I think it's so interesting that Jehoshaphat didn't just pray this beautifully humble prayer, but he actually prayed it in the presence of other people, all of his community, all the people he actually led, all of his friends, all of his mentors, all of his family. He's literally praying surrounded by other people. One of my heroes is a a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I actually talked about his life a couple weeks ago. He was a pastor, theologian, spy, and uh, and a martyr in Nazi Germany, epic life. But he has this phrase that he he really uh, liked and he used often in his his writings. And here's the phrase, Christ existing as community. Christ existing as community. Now, I have to be honest, it's a really deep, deep phrase. I could probably preach an entire message on it. But I think one theologian summarizes it really well, explains what he's, what he's getting at. This is what she says. She says, Bonhoeffer is convinced that one cannot be a Christian just for oneself, but always and only in the community of the faithful. In other words, you, if you think that you can do life by yourself, I'm going to speak really bluntly, you are fooling yourself. To isolate yourself is to desolate yourself. Yes, that rhymes, okay? To isolate yourself is to desolate yourself. It really is. And here's the other thing that I just got to be real with you, and this is really what Bonhoeffer is getting at, is if you think that you can do Christianity by yourself, you're also fooling yourself. Hear me, you can do religion by yourself, but you cannot do Christianity by yourself because as messy as it is, as beautiful as it is, Christianity is all about relationship, relationship first with God and then with each other. We need each other. We have to humbly admit our need for God 
And we have to humbly admit our need for each other. We have to be humble. And here's the second thing that we learn from the story of Jehoshaphat is that we need to take courage. Be humble and take courage. So Jehoshaphat is, is praying this prayer. It's an incredible moment in God's presence and in the presence of other people. And as he's seeking God, this prophet stands up in the middle of everyone. And this is what he says. This is 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 15 now. This is what he says. This is what the Lord God says to you all. Don't be afraid or discouraged by this great army because the battle isn't yours. It belongs to God. March out against them tomorrow. You don't even need to fight this battle. Just take your places, stand ready, and watch how the Lord who is with you will deliver you. Don't be afraid or discouraged. Go out tomorrow and face them. The Lord your God will be with you. You know what's so interesting to me is that even though God assures Jehoshaphat that he's going to fight this battle for them, they still have to face their fears, don't they? They still actually have to march out against this immeasurable army. They still have to take courage. So I meet people all the time that, that think that courage is just this inherent trait, and some people just have it. Some people are just naturally born courageous and, and brave and strong, and other people just don't. But I don't think that's the case at all. In fact, I really like this author. His name's Malcolm Gladwell. He's actually written five number one New York Times bestsellers. Talk about a record. Oh, my goodness, it's crazy. But in, in, in his most recent book, this is what he says on the topic of courage. He says this, courage is not something that you already have that makes you brave when the tough times start. Courage is what you earn when you've been through the tough times and you discover that they aren't so tough after all. <laughs> I love that. You see, so many people disqualify themselves from living a life of courage. And they say things like, well, I'm just not strong enough. Oh, but now is your opportunity to be strong. Or, oh, I'm just not that, you know, merciful. I'm just not that, that loving. Well, but now is your time to actually show mercy and to become love. Oh, I just don't have enough discipline or self-control. No, no, no. Now is your time to actually step up and have discipline and have self-control. Oh, I just don't have enough faith. Oh, no, no, no. Now is your time to actually cultivate greater faith. Oh, I'm just not a courageous person. No, no, no. Now is your opportunity for courage. So you do not disqualify yourself. None of us should expect to actually have perfect courage the moment we enter into the fire. The moment that we enter into tribulation, the moment we enter into trial, but guess what? Every single one of us should expect that when we come out of the fire, when we come out of the tribulation, when we come out of the trial, we will be better and stronger and more courageous than ever before. You see, this, this, this way of thinking is, is right in line, it's congruent with really the way that I even understand the, the very definition of courage. In fact, there's this ancient philosopher, you've probably heard of him, his name's Aristotle, uh, but he said this, he said, courage is the first of human qualities because it is the quality which guarantees all the others. You will never do anything in this world without courage. And then C.S. Lewis, who actually did his undergrad work at Oxford in classical philosophy, he kind of, he builds on this thought, and he actually says this, courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. So what's that mean? What does that mean to us? This is what it means. I'll give you some examples. That when your dreams feel light years away, courage is working hard and pursuing them with enthusiasm and energy and passion and belief and faith. When your marriage is hard and it's taking the life out of you, courage is not giving up and fighting for it with everything that you've got. When your kids are just driving you insane, courage is being patient with them and loving them and forgiving them just like Jesus does. 
When you feel like you don't have the emotional capacity to actually forgive someone, courage is choosing to forgive anyway. Courage is choosing to love and to trust that God will take care of the situation. When you are tempted to sin, courage is actually fighting that temptation, actually trying your best to be strong and to overcome and to have self-control. When you feel frustration and anger mounting within yourself, courage is actually giving those emotions to God and allowing him to just, again, just literally back up and he, he takes care of the situation. When you're afraid or in secure courage is journeying onwards nevertheless you see courage is the form of every single virtue at the testing point it's standing firm when everything around you falls apart it's holding your ground when everything uh, beneath you is just crumbling it's not giving up when everything inside of you wants to if you're going to wake up to your power if you're going to realize that you have the greatest power in all the universe living inside of you you have to be humble you have to take courage and here's the third thing just worship just worship now, this sounds like such an incredibly passive statement, but I'll say this. It is the most proactive statement, and let me explain why. Upon hearing the prophet's words, Jehoshaphat, uh, he, this is his response. We pick up the story, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 18. It says this, Then Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground, and all of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord in worship. Verse 19, the Levites, who were the priests and pastors of the day, the Levites stood up loudly to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. And after consulting with the people, Jehoshaphat appointed musicians to play for the Lord, praising his majestic holiness. They were to march out before the warriors, saying, give thanks to the Lord, for his faithful love lasts forever. Did you catch that real quick, though? Jehoshaphat literally commands the worship leaders to go before the warriors into battle. Man, I gotta admit, I would hate to be on the worship team that day. Like, I, I like being on the worship team, not that day. You can count me out, okay? But here's the reality. I think there's, there's, there's two quick things that we can kind of focus in on, on this. Here's the first is the action of worship, the literal action of worship. One of my favorite communicators is a, a pastor named Ern McManus. He pastors down in LA, and he says this, worship creates a shift of responsibility. Worship creates a shift of responsibility. In other words, worship reminds us that it is God's power, not our own power, that will actually lead us to victory and to triumph. It's this whole idea that's communicated in Zechariah 4, 6. It says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, will I accomplish it. That's why the warriors went in front of the, or the worshipers went in front of the warriors. It was the ultimate acknowledgement of who was in control. Judah wasn't in control. Jehoshaphat wasn't in control. God was in control. It reminds me of this other, this other story in the scriptures that's just so beautiful. It's found in Acts chapter 16. The apostle Paul and his coworker, they do this incredible miracle. And, and for some reason, the city, actually, rather than responding with awe and wonder, they actually get really angry at Paul and Silas. And this is where we pick up the story. Acts chapter 16, verse 22, it says this, that the crowd joined in on attacks against Paul and Silas. The authorities ordered that they would be stripped of their clothes and beaten with a rod. When Paul and Silas had been severely beaten, the authorities threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to secure them with great care. And when they received these instructions, he threw them into the innermost cell and secured their feet in stocks. And then verse 25, I love this. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. And all at once, there was a violent earthquake, and it shook the prison's foundations. The doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. It's such an incredible story. But one word stands out to me in that whole thing were. <laughs> the word were. And maybe it's because I, I really like literature. Maybe it's because I'm a grammar nerd. I don't know. But the word were. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were worshiping and praying and singing hymns to God. 
You see, I think sometimes we read through that scripture and we read through the story and we think, oh, so the minute that Paul and Silas started worshiping, all of a sudden, man, the power of God came down. They experienced God's power like never before. The prison doors were flown open. No, it says that they were. It says midnight came and they were already doing it. They were already worshiping God. They were already declaring and reminding themselves of who God actually was. How long were they worshiping, I wonder? I don't think it was just for five minutes. I don't think it was just a three-set song list. Man, I have a feeling that they were like, they were worshiping probably for a really long time, for hours, for half the day, for the whole day. I don't know. Who knows? But here's the point in it, is that we have to worship long enough to experience a miracle. Worship long enough to experience a miracle. So many of us give up before we experience the miracle. Your miracle is right around the corner. Just don't give up. Keep worshiping God. Keep praising God. Keep trusting God. Keep believing that the best is in front of you. So we noted their action. And here's the second quick thing. We have to note their focus, the focus of their worship. You see, they didn't go around singing, you know, give thanks to the Lord because his incredible power is inside of us. They knew that it was, but those weren't the lyrics. What were the lyrics? Give thanks to the Lord because he is good. His faithful Love lasts forever. You see, I've seen it so many times that when people become obsessed with the power, they always abuse that power. In the scriptures, there's this, this short story about Jesus' disciples in Luke chapter 17, and they, they go out on this ministry tour, and they come back, and they're telling Jesus story after story of all these incredible, powerful things that actually happened. And they're like, oh my gosh, Jesus, this is so cool. And Jesus' response is amazing. He goes, yeah, you got power. We got so much power that I actually saw Satan fall down from heaven like lightning on the earth. But then he says this, but don't, don't get caught up in the power. Marvel at how much I love you. Rejoice in the fact that you have a relationship with me. Rejoice in the fact that we're close, that we know each other. You see, when we make the love of God our focus, the power of God is the result. When we make the love of God our focus, the power of God is the result. So let's finish up the story of Jehoshaphat. Verse 22, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 22. As they broke into joyful song and praise, the Lord launched a surprise attack against the Ammonites, the Moabites, and those from Mount Seir who were invading Judah, so that they were defeated. The Ammonites, the Moabites, turned on those from Mount Seir, completely destroying them. And once they had finished off the inhabitants of Seir, they helped destroy each other. So when Judah arrived to the point overlooking the wilderness, all they could see were corpses lying all over the ground. There were no survivors. And when Jehoshaphat and his army came to take the loot, they found such a great amount of cattle, goods, clothing, and other valuables that it was so much more than they could even carry. In fact, it took them three days to haul it all away. And then everyone from Judah and Jerusalem, with Jehoshaphat at their head, joyfully returned home to Jerusalem because the Lord had given them reason to rejoice. You see, the reality is God loves you so much. It doesn't matter what your past looks like. It doesn't matter what you're dealing with right now. The Lord sees you and he loves you so much. And he's with you and he's for you. God actually wants you to win in life. God can and will fight your battles for you just like the story of Jehoshaphat if if you invite him into your life. If you invite him into whatever situation that you're facing, whatever battle that you're waging right now, God's power can become your power. You just have to be humble Take courage and just worship.